This podcast is supported by Siemens, your partner for industrial grade AI. So, hello everybody and welcome to a new episode of our Industrial AI podcast. My name is Robert Weber and it's a pleasure to talk to Peter Sieber, good morning, good afternoon, Robert, and a nice welcome to our listeners. Hello, Peter. I'm sitting in the car, 20 kilometers from Nuremberg right now, because the SPS, or PLC, trade fair show starts today. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Peter, if you hear some, some trucks in the background, <laughs> please don't let disturb you. But I have already looked in the in the official magazine of the fair and hardly found any AI or machine learning topic. Oh, really? That's a, that surprised mm, me a lot. Mm, well, you will see. I, I will not be there. Yep. Um, you will be going around. We have been going around. When was the last time we officially did that? That was at, at Hanover Fair, right? That was uh, three years ago, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it was a big thing. And we still go there. You and I still have, you know, our talk industrial uh, talk industrial ai talk but at that time I, th i as far as i recall we counted you know like 200 and maybe we said you know 100 really do something very specific now yeah. this can mean two things if in three days from now at the end of the day you're going to say yeah i didn't see anything number one possible i don't believe that and number two what is possible companies are not that explicit about it exactly. you know it's it's probably about the hype curve so we've 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 moved the top and we're now going down the slope and we still not not still i had the same topic yesterday in one of the courses and and one of the attendees was saying all the things that they're doing so they have come already out of the slope they're they're building And others, you know, maybe it's also the terminology, depending on what you were looking at, right? Artificial intelligence, or were you looking at machine learning? or Because that's something still, well, we say industrial AI, is yeah. it maybe machine learning? So maybe the other thing is companies will be showing things, but more like integrated into their solutions. And they offer solutions, and the way they get there, maybe people are less interested in. Yeah. We will see. I will, I will report in the next podcast about the SPS and right. the products and the solutions uh, I saw there. So let's start with the news part. Peter, the stage is yours. Okay, I've, I've got three. First is yeah. a team at the European Commission. Uh, they have a joint research center. They wrote a glossary. A glossary of terms on artificial intelligence, okay. a focus on human-centric approach, We're clear, you know, that's what we in Europe are about. Uh, for their work, they use existing glossaries from the high-level expert group, from the OECD, from ISO, IEC, Digital Services Act, a couple of other things. They even used, uh, you know, encyclopedias, specifically they mentioned Wikipedia, <laughs> uh, also specialized websites, blogs, you know, they mentioned towards data science. I read that every now and then. Okay. I didn't see that they looked at our AI pod, the e website, but who knows? Now, nevertheless, out came 230 terms, 24 of them starting with an A. Yeah, they give an overview alphabetically. Not sure why they do that. None of none of the terms start with a J, X, Y, or Z, just for okay. our listeners' information. I'm sure that that's very interesting. Uh, now, under A, they share six 
around 100 words long definitions of artificial intelligence. Of course, that's the number one that I was looking at mm -hmm. just for, for interest. And I would suggest our listeners, if you are not yet sure, also you, Robert, what AI is, <laughs> go and download the glossary, read all six and pick your preferred one. What is your preferred one? Oh, well, yeah, I'll tell you. Or as an alternative, I would suggest use my definition, which is uh, only 20 words long. And I'm as modest as to, of course, share that at the moment. So I say AI is when an algorithm in the hands of a human finds patterns in data and makes seemingly intelligent proposals. Okay. So that's um, uh, as an alternative number seven potential definition. But as always, we'll put the link in the podcast notes for you to download the glossary. Perfect. I have only one one use. Yesterday, I was able to have an interesting discussion with with two company representatives, and it was about the question of whether data will be accounted in the future. Are they an asset? They that can be valued and how do you mm -hmm. do that and then made a few phone calls and uh, even found someone who could tell us something okay. about it um the date for the recording has not been yet set but we will report on it because it's very interesting to mm -hmm. to account data in your account that's for companies i think that's that's a topic for the maybe mm -hmm. the near future yeah um, you've told the story about that somewhere you got a free, so-called free cup of coffee in exchange for your data, right? Yeah, it's a, it was in Switzerland. It's a restaurant where you mm -hmm. can uh, exchange data <laughs> for coffee. Um, but I, I think when you have merger and acquisitions, the topic mm -hmm. data right. is a very important topic. I, I think when, when Microsoft bought LinkedIn, it, it's all about data. It's not about the technology of, mm -hmm. of the social network. Uh, mm -hmm. It's all about the data of the of the people who, who join or who use LinkedIn. So data is an important mm -hmm. asset and maybe for industrial company, it will be accountable in the future. Yeah. I heard the same story said about I don't like using the name of the person, but the one that bought Twitter that that was for the <laughs> same reason for you know for not for whatever yeah. reason there may be hundreds of reasons positive uh, not so positive but you know one may have been for yeah the data the the data that people generate through using Twitter yeah. So I will do the recording. Maybe I will also contact uh, some some banks or some accounting companies. We have a, a lot of accounting companies in, in, in the world. Um, maybe it's an interesting topic also for industrial companies. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. Peter, go on. Uh, second one is about uh, autonomous driving. The mm -hmm. Ford car company. They announced that uh, they will um, wind down Argo AI, yeah. which they had, uh, together with Volkswagen, set up for developing level four autonomous driving technologies. Now, this decision has a number of uh, analysts call out that, you know, self-driving cars uh, are not going to happen, at least not 
truly autonomous vehicles mm -hmm. in our lifetimes, mm -hmm. you know, whatever age of those <laughs> analysts were, you know, if they're the same age as I, that's, you know, it's a different meaning from, you know, a 20 year old um, person and not at any kind of scale, you know. So uh, the only brands that, that also I know of still operating driverless at the same time, you, I did see it was on LinkedIn, maybe you've seen. Uh, one of the people that we follow, um, uh, driverless vehicles on public roads, uh, but of course, strongly limited by area, also by mm -hmm. time, uh, Waymo and Cruise, uh, without it's now going into the details, and, and Uber and Tesla, they have had their share of driverless and co-driver casualties and of course, they're under scrutiny of the U.S. government. And then the only brand that I know of, you know, having a level three product is our, you know, good old uh, Mercedes. Mercedes, uh, yeah. Level three, I think it's called the EQC. So in the end, maybe as I stated in our, my booklet, how AI is changing our lives, 100 questions and answers, we say, you know, maybe we're sooner going to see autonomous flying cabs. Yes, yeah, sure. But I think it was not the EQC, it was the EQS, but I'm not sure. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, I'm not that strongly aware of... Uh, you are, you're more in camping. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I uh, I still drive when, every now and then. Uh, well, but normally I do. Uh, I do use uh, public transport, you know, the, yeah. the, the German... Uh, ICE uh, fast train with including internet connection and capabilities for working and relaxing. Uh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. If working it is on time relaxing, yeah. and if it is working. Uh, I've got a final one. Final one. I started reading a book called Game Changer. One or the other listener may have done the same already. Not sure how old it is. Uh, I think it's the work started four years ago, actually. It's um, about Alpha Zero's groundbreaking chess strategies and the promise of AI by Matthew Sadler and Natasha Regan. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like to share some quotes out of it first, and they are from 2018, as I say. So the first is Gary Kasparov. <clears throat> he gives the introduction. He says, I always say I was the first knowledge worker whose job was threatened by a machine. You know, <laughs> referring to his loss to IBM yep. Deep Blue in 1997. And then he says, instead of using machines as tools, machines become the experts and humans will oversee them. Mm -hmm. oh, that's his thought. And then I've got a couple of quotes from Demis Hasabis. You know, he's the DeepMind CEO, right? A uh, very, very interesting character. You know, whatever you can get on YouTube, anywhere else, I can strongly suggest any listener to take in what he has to share with us he is for me at the same level as uh, andrew uh, wing you know those are the number one and two in my mind people that show us us the world where ai is leading us so he's the uh, deep mind ceo alpha he is the brain you know behind together with two three other guys um uh alpha go alpha zero and he says number one You know, we want to solve intelligence and then use it to solve everything else. Um, and on the path towards that ultimate goal, we perhaps surprisingly use games. Mm -hmm. Now, that's what I want to comment on. And then I, I finish with two, three more quotes from him. 
why do I want to comment on it? Because as you know, I, you know, I kind of, I, I'm on a kind of a AI chess or chess AI, yes. right? You know, I restarted playing chess like a year ago. You said you've been playing chess in the past as well. So I do, I, I train a bit. I play on leeches um, and I combine this, you know, renewed or additional chess knowledge with my basic knowledge on AI. Mm -hmm. You know, seeing other chess students and professionals, you know, kind of forced to learn by heart thousands of openings. You know, I think most of our listeners at least have heard about, you know, something called out like, you know, the Italian opening, the Spanish yeah. or the Berlin or the Queen's Gambit, you know, yep. after which the, the movie in two, three years was called. Now, that thought is not very, what should I say, not very interesting to me. I don't, I like very much what I'm doing, but this idea of then, you know, kind, almost kind of needing to go back to school and learn by heart, that's not interesting for me at all. So, and then I start comparing this approach with AI, right? So, and I would say, it sounds very much like the original 1960s, 70s, um, symbolic AI approach. You know, yeah. all, and that originally, that then ended up in the AI winter, right? Because it was all about describing, you know, rules-based symbolic. Yeah. Then after the AI winter came machine learning, unsupervised deep reinforcement learning. That's what, you know, Demis and DeepMind are using. And these algorithms, they look at millions now, for us humans, who knows? Maybe we can look at tens or hundreds of thousands of games mm -hmm. and learn, but in a completely different way. That's my hypothesis. You know, that's my hypothesis that there's going to be a new way of moving forward in chess uh, for me and others. And I'm very encouraged by the fact that uh, reading in the book, I didn't know that. Um, I've seen that, you know, chess world champion Magnus Carlsen. He has started looking at those games and he has started using some of the specific approaches, moves mm -hmm. uh, from his games. And now Magnus is already the world champion. Uh, you know, I'd still need to get there. Uh, but my feeling is that we will see uh, a new way for humans to learn learning from AI. Do you record a, a chess podcast too, Peter? <laughs> um, no, I was going to write a booklet. I okay. was going to write a booklet, but not on not on the combination. I still may do that as well at some point in time. Well, as you and I know, we know how much time goes into writing a booklet. Now, I was I was going to write a booklet on verbs. There was okay. a one on, on German chess verbs, but then I saw that already exists. So no, I'm not going to do that. So you you need to do a podcast, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Um, but but again, you know the the reason for me this sharing here, and of course we do share in our uh, news update things that are very specific to industrial AI. But we do, as we did today, and we do other times, share also thoughts that are you know completely far away. You know, likely as Demi says at the beginning, you know, yep. games. What about that? What what can we learn from games? Well, I believe that we. And all of our listeners listening to our industrial AI podcast can learn a lot, can learn from very games. many things. In this case, well, in this specific case from games, yeah, right. I think 
really the way that it happened, you know, with um, Kasparov, that's uh, 90, no, 1997, that's 25 years ago. And, and chess was the first kind of, let's say, let's not call it a market activity, you know, games mm-hmm. that was completely changed. And I think by looking at what is happening there, and the good thing is that there was an initial th- thought that, you know, nobody was going to be playing chess or go anymore. Mm-hmm. That's yep. completely not the case. No, there's now in chess, there's like four or five times as many people playing chess. And, you know, AI has completely, you know, you know, reinvented kind of and, and gave a new push to, to the game. So. so now let's switch to, to the main part, Peter. You spoke with Michael or Michael Haft from Explain Data. Right. What was it about? Oh, it's about uh, the difference between correlation and causation. <laughs> and somewhere in the um, in the interview, I recall that you know, uh, as I was you know working here within our industrial data intelligence uh, team, that we had my colleague uh, Dr. Albert Krohn, Albert, if you're listening, and he would say this every now and then. Now all together, you know. Correlation is not the same as causation. And that's some kind of quote that many listeners will have heard somewhere. I, I still don't know where it originates from, but you know, people who kind of study statistics or yeah, are somehow related to correlation. Uh, and you know, Michael, he has a specific approach and he says, you know, the, the very fact that uh, we're not looking at a causality within artificial intelligence. So he says specifically what we have been doing many, many times here in our podcast. You know, we look at predictive mm-hmm. uh, maintenance analytics and we find out, oh, there is a problem, you know, and the algorithm is predicting that, you know, 10 mm-hmm. minutes from now, one hour from now, something is going to go wrong. But we need to go the next step and find out. We need to find the causation for it. And he is suggesting that that is not uh, taking place or not taking place enough. And uh, so he is uh, explaining us uh, the difference between correlation causation, and he's showing a path forward for more strongly including causation into artificial intelligence. I'm really looking forward to to hear that uh, this interview. Thank you, Peter. It was a pleasure. I will now join the the SBS and maybe I put my headphones on and we'll hear the main part um, to our listeners. Enjoy the main part and thanks for listening. And thanks, Peter. Greetings to Munich. Have a good time at the SBS. Say hello to our friends and yes. uh, hello to our listeners that you may run into. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. My guest today is Michael Haft. He is the founder and CEO of Explain Data. Hello, Michael. Hello, Peter. Michael, please tell our listeners, who are you, where are you from, and what do you do at Explain Data? So basically, Explain Data is a startup company here in Germany, close to Munich. Um, and our topic is understanding cause and effect relationship based on observational data. And I'm certainly going to explain along this podcast what that means. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, maybe as a, as a quick introduction, what are the kind of 
things that maybe I, I think the the name is kind of in the game of explaining data, uh, but maybe you still want to explain the next uh, level in your words, you know, what, what it is exactly that you're doing. Maybe for that reason, the kind of customers that you have or that you are looking for, the kind of applications and use cases. Yeah, maybe let me start this way. Um, I, I want to argue why is causality important? Um, and I think it's evidently important, but it's not that much prevalent in the domain of artificial intelligence. And we're going to change that. So let me start in explaining why causality is important. Let me explain it by, by means of starting with predictive modeling. So everyone is talking about predictive modeling at the moment um, and predictive maintenance in, in the case of industry of things which basically means predicting the probability for a machine to fail. But the next important question might be, once I know that there is a machine which is likely to fail, what can I do about it? And that's where basically predictive modeling ends and causal discovery starts. Because your goal then is to intervene into a system uh, to, to set some actions which uh, avoid failures. And the interventions which you do, they should better be in a cause and effect relationship to the target, um, to, to the failure variable. So that means and predictive modeling doesn't tell you anything about um, a cause and effect. And causal discovery is kind of the next step. It's not predicting the probability to fail. It's going to tell you what do I need to do to change the failure probability. And I would argue that is evidently important. Maybe it's an even more important question of not knowing the probability to fail on what can I do about it. And that's an element which I believe is still missing in artificial intelligence. So causality needs to become a very important element of artificial intelligence. That's, that's our opinion and that's our mission to change this. Very good. I'm completely with you. I've uh, been dealing with predictive for many, many years. And uh, I guess in the end, when algorithms were showing certain, I will use the word for the moment, certain correlations, uh, you, will, you will talk about that topic. Uh, it was always the domain expert who was then giving, uh, and again, I say this very carefully, you know, causal relationship to you know the combination of certain variables but you will uh, you're going to explain if that was correct or not let's let's just really start there let's stay with the cause and effect key to artificial intelligence as you said and what i was reading also on your website you know uncover cause and effect relationships in your real world data now this sounds like and in my case it was you know four or five years ago um, not too far away from uh, where you are based uh, we were in a startup industrial data intelligence and my colleague albert crone is his name and he would at regular intervals tell us and now all together correlation is not causation and you, <laughs> you know exactly that i don't know where it's from maybe you want to tell us so what i would like to do is that you take us that you take our listeners with you and that you start explaining us what is exactly and it's now a play on words the relationship between you know cause and effect in other words, what is the difference then between correlation and causation? And on your website, you're using this perfect example of the gray hair, the glasses and age. And maybe you want to uh, explain our listeners uh, along those lines. 
Right. So indeed, uh, the, this word correlation doesn't equal causation. It's it's used very, very often, but uh, simultaneously, it seems to be one of the most frequently ignored truths also. <laughs> People are very often drawing a conclusion based on correlation. Um, uh, and what they indeed want to know is a cause and effect relationship. And uh, example on our website with gray hair and glasses, maybe I walk you through that just as an illustration. So I don't know, you might have gray hair, Peter. And, you have actually. <laughs> so, so do I. <laughs> and I need glasses for reading. I don't know whether you need glasses for I reading. I do as well. For uh, reading. You, do as well. <laughs> you see, so obviously, gray hair and glasses, uh, those two variables are kind of correlated. But they are not in a cause and effect relationship. You, you might try to put your glasses aside to avoid your hair becoming even more gray, but that probably wouldn't have any effect. <laughs> uh, exactly. and, and you know why, but because there is a so-called common cause for both. So it, and it's age. The older you get, the more likely you have gray hair and the more likely you need glasses. So that's a common cause for both, with causing both gray hair and glasses. And that re results in a correlation between gray hair and glasses, but there isn't a cause and effect relationship between the two. So that illustrates the difference between correlation and causation. And for building a predictive model, you can build a predictive model perfectly well um, based on correlations. So, for example, you might be running a shop on Amazon and you don't know the age of your customers, but you know uh, some of the customers have bought glasses and you want to sell them a product for uh, coloring your, the hair. Um, and you can build a predictive model who is likely in, in need of a product for coloring your hair. So you can uh, use the information about glasses to estimate and probability who might want to have a product for coloring a hair. So a predictive model can be built perfectly well based on correlated information, but it doesn't tell you anything about cause and effect. And about understanding cause and effect largely means understanding potential confounders. That's the technical term um, for age is a confounder, causes both. And there might be many of those confounders. Age is just the most evident variable. There might be many others as well. So stress in your job might cause your hair to become gray. And because you have so much stress in your job, you're sitting in front of your computer all night long and which causes you to finally, you finally need glasses. So there might be many of them And you need to know all of them to get an, an idea about potential cause and effect relationships. Can you give us maybe an example or two just out of our real life where people, where all of us were listeners, maybe until lately, until you started studying the topic, the topic yourself made kind of, uh, you drew false conclusions, you know, that uh, correlations were actually causations. <laughs> Yeah, there, there, there are many funny kind of examples. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you please share up, them. <laughs> you wake up in the morning and you have your shoes still on um, and you have a headache. And you might conclude, oh, sleeping with shoes uh, causes headaches. But <laughs> the real confounder is that you have been drinking in, uh, in oh, right. the evening before and it causes you to fall into your bed with your shoes on and, and the next day you have a headache. So oh, that never <laughs> happened to me. I'm not sure what you're talking no, about. <laughs> also not to me, but that's kind okay. of a... 
there are many of those amusing examples, but there are many others certainly as well where people draw false conclusions based on on correlations. And ba basically, the, the world is full of correlation. Uh, let me jump to the healthcare domain, for example. So uh, in healthcare, we have around about a couple of thousand, up to 10,000 different drugs which your doctor can prescribe to you. There are about a couple of thousand, maybe 10,000 different diseases, so-called uh, ICD codes, which a doctor can assign to you. And so it's a 10,000 times 10,000, it's a million, a hundred million pairs of variables. And whatever pair you pick, you will likely see a correlation between the two of them. And simply because um, it, for most of the drugs and for most of the diseases, it holds that the older you get, the more likely you need uh, some of those drugs and the more likely you have some of those diseases, which again results in a correlation as in our gray hair and glasses example, which means there are hundreds of millions of correlations in, in, in those data um, and nearly all of them are more or less meaningless um, and are not telling you anything about cause and effect and, and certainly people very often draw false conclusions on cause and effects if they observe a correlation also in healthcare but that not that much in healthcare because in healthcare it's indeed very well known in between or people are very aware of the fact that correlation doesn't cause doesn't equal causation but that's different in other industries and, and it's also uh, the case in in internet of things or in manufacturing so the engineer is very much inclined if he sees a correlation he concludes on a cause and effect relationship because he typically does experiments in an experiment it's still true if you do an experiment in, in, a, in a controlled environment you may conclude if you observe a correlation there you may conclude on a cause and effect relationship uh, that's also what what the healthcare industry does they are doing a, a randomized controlled trial for example a, a, an experiment and under such experimental conditions you may from a correlation conclude on a cause and effect relationship but that's exactly different in case of so-called observational data, if you're just observing a system uh, and, and you're not doing experiments, in that case, uh, it's different. If you just observe many people and whether they have gray hair and glasses, from those observational data, you may not conclude on a cause and effect relationship. Let's stay with that for a moment, yeah, because the, the more general question, can we measure causation or, you know, staying with then the observational data, can, you know, can we out of the obs observational data, uh, you know, detract the cause and effect relationship? Or what does that then mean for the way that we collect data And maybe, yeah, it's okay for the beginning to stay in healthcare. I think all of us can follow. And then later on, we can kind of slowly move into industrial environments and specifically refer back to, you know, again, my personal experience. And we've been using it a long, long time. Always like algorithms look into data from the last, you know, couple of weeks, months, maybe even a year, find certain relationships. And most of them, Uh, the domain expert can recognize and then there is something there that the, the engineers let's say in this case the engineer as the domain expert needs to look into so maybe you can uh, comment uh, on that right so everyone knows that definition of correlation so if uh, if you have a data set a table with a hundred columns and, and a couple of thousand lines uh, every student knows how to compute the correlation coefficient it just Anything he needs is just those two columns to compute the correlation coefficient. And the question is, is there a similar precise definition for causation? And unfortunately, there isn't. Um, so basically, correlation 
has a precise definition, causation, unfortunately not. And indeed, causation cannot be proven based on observational data, at least not in any uh, real-world setting. In a, in a theoretical setting, maybe, but in a real-world setting, usually not. And the reason is what you need to understand potential cause and effect relationship, you need indeed very, very comprehensive data. So as explained in the in our gray hairs and glasses example, if, if you don't know the age of, of our uh, visitors, we m might falsely conclude on a cause and effect relationship between gray hair and glasses. But as, as said, it might not just be age, it might be stress in your job, uh, nutrition environments on whatever. Um, and at the end, you need to know kind of everything to rule out any potential confounders. And if I just can't explain an observed correlation by means of some of confounding information, so however hard I, however big data I have and however hard I search, I just can't explain a correlation, then it's still not a proof for a cause and effect relationship, but it's a very likely candidate. So that, that shows you that there, there's no precise ma mathematical definition, but a, a kind of correlation is the opposite to causation. For correlation, you need just two columns in the table. Uh, for causation, you me need to know just everything else uh, because if everything else, if in all the information which you have, you can't find con a confounder which explains an ob observed correlation, then it's a likely cause and effect relationship. I believe that we may not want to go there, that there's there's even like a more philosophical school of thinking that causation does not exist or whatever, but you may want to comment <laughs> on that just in a moment. What I'm going to do in the future, I do, um, I do trainings, I do introductions uh, to uh, artificial intelligence. So the first question always is, what is artificial intelligence? And then I go through a couple of um, ideas and thoughts from the past, and then I conclude And the, the next question is, you know, what is intelligence? And I say, well, I'm not an expert, but we do not have one single definition of intelligence. Number two, we do not have one single definition of artificial intelligence. For that reason, the European Union at the moment has, you know, one page description of what AI is. And in the future, that's my point. I'm going to add, if I'm then going to talk about correlation and causation, I'm going to add to say, and we do not have one precise definition of causation um this thing that i just mentioned and i never really understood that we may not want to go there too deeply but there is a school of thought that says you know causation can never be what what does do you understand what i'm talking about what does it refer to like philosophically yes definitely they're not trying to define the the term causation is indeed very difficult um and at the end you might you might be able to define it on a on a very a physical level so I've, i've been studying physics and certainly the the concept of cause and effect uh, is a very important one um and if you go down to a physical level uh, there are certainly cause and effect relationships but we are talking about observational data on a very very different level um and defining term causation based on observational data, it's basically not possible. And uh, that doesn't mean that it's not important for artificial intelligence. And there are a couple of different kind of semi-mathematical definitions. And okay, it's, it's not possible to define it in a, in a rigorous mathematical way. Nevertheless, the concept is important um, and needs to be an element of artificial intelligence. So let's see how we get at least in the direction of it or close or completely. I mean, you have introduced, I understand, the theme of object analytics. What does it stand for so as explained, for understanding potential cause and effect relationship, 
requires very comprehensive information because otherwise we are at the risk of missing some important confounders. So in, in, in terms of the three Vs of big data, it, uh, it's, it's the third V. It's uh, big data sometimes defini defined as volume, velocity, and variety. And we need a big variety variety of information about the object in focus of analytics. And that's, as I said, causation is kind of the opposite to correlation. For correlation, I need just two columns. For causation, I need everything else. And everything else necessarily means it's not a flat table. Because um, imagine, for example, the object in focus of analysis is the patient. And you have electronic health record, for example, with prescription diagnosis, procedures, operations, lab values, genetic data, whatever. Um, that would never fit into a flat table. Necessarily, it's a complex data schema, or in other words, it's a complex object which you need to analyze. Um, and that's what we indeed do. So basically, for implementing our causal discovery algorithms, we have also implemented our own kind of database, which we call an object analytics database, where all the information important information for a customer, for example, um, is attached to the object in, in focus of analysis. In, in, in healthcare, it's the patient. In industry, it's the part which is manufactured in a, in a manufacturing line or the machine. Um, and whatever the root object is, uh, you can attach a number of different data streams uh, to, to this root object and having all information in one place together, stored in a kind of object, you can analyze this object holistically, um, which definitely is a basis, as explained, you, uh, it definitely is important for causal discovery, so not to miss important confound. Now, does this concept of the need uh, for holistic data hold true for the example of healthcare you mentioned? Uh, let us move into and compare with and also already split uh, in manufacturing between discrete manufacturing and process manufacturing. So the point is, uh, again, just built on my personal uh, experience and, you know, having had many um, interviews on the topic. So if in discrete manufacturing, you know, I have a, a number of variables, if there are 10 or 100 or 150, and from my experience, they would be brought down even to the most relevant ones. So we can talk about that. Uh, and then we would arrive to a point where, you know, algorithms would find certain, let's say, to relations. And for me, then always the domain expert was and probably still is the person to then say, oh, I don't know what that is. Maybe, you know, a sensor was dirty or something or would then say, oh, that's amazing. You know, we've looked at this for a year or two with a complete team who had no idea. And now we see the relation of A, B, X and Z. And now we understand what's happening. So from my understanding, you should please comment, is that they are finding this relationship between, you know, the uh, correlation and causation. And then the third category for us in this um, podcast, it's two categories, it's discrete manufacturing and just discussed. And the other one is process industry, where again, from my um, personal experience, we did come typically a lot more complex, you know, even if the, the algorithm would find certain correlations, it would be so complex that we would need to do, my colleagues, not me, my colleagues would need to do root cause analysis. So I'm asking you for uh, this need for holistic data. Is that always the same or does it really depend on the environment, healthcare, discrete or 
process manufacturing. Yeah, I definitely believe that it's always the same. So um, if, if you don't have holistic information, you're certainly going to miss important confounders um, because you, you just never know um, where those confounders might come from um, and, and the need of very holistic information. So I'll give another example. Maybe I've, we have recently been trying to understand who is likely to be infected with COVID based on the data of a public sickness fund. Um, and so at, at a very naive first look, it seemed that women are more likely to be infected than men. But only as soon as we attached information about the employment situation, it turned out that it's it's the employer or if someone is working in a kindergarten or as a teacher, he's more likely to be infected. And typically th those are more, more women than men. So you see, you're quickly drawing very wrong conclusions on cause and effect. Women might be more likely to be infected simply in case or if you have missing information. And so it, it again shows that you really better need to attach just everything you know about your object and focus of analysis and let the machine search of all this information to come up with meaningful cause and effect relationships. And even then, uh, it's uh, the typically uh, even uh, you, you never have complete information. If you have just complete information, then you might indeed be able to prove a cause and effect relationship. But but that's not true in real world data typically. And that's where the expert comes in. So I want to avoid the perception that causal discovery is just an algorithm where you hit a button and you start the algorithm and you get the results. Definitely understanding cause and effect relationships requires the involvement of the expert. The expert needs to be able to make interpretations of the results. He needs to be able to, for example, say, okay, I I just can't understand this factor. Show me the next best alternative to that. Or he might need to be able to do things like formulate his assumption on I would have expected that this and this factor is causing COVID-19 or whatever. And the machine is going to explain why it doesn't because it's correlated to others and the other factors are the direct cause and effect relationships. So definitely causal discovery is not just an intelligent algorithm. It needs to be uh, more than that. It needs to be a concept. And in, in that sense, it falls into the domain of explanatory AI, explaining these factors to an expert, giving the expert the opportunity to give feedback. Um, and in this interaction with the expert, finally arrive at meaningful results. Okay, I'm very happy to hear that because I've been kind of uh, almost like teaching, praying, praying to the crowd for many years that I've been saying, you know, with, with the changes we're in the middle of industrial 4.0, artificial intelligence, data science, machine learning, the role of what I call the domain expert uh, is be, and it doesn't matter. Um, I have been saying in what market, you know, if it's in a healthcare, a house doctor, as we call it, it's called the PG, I believe, in international terms or in industry you know the person in charge of the production line because i've sometimes become more philosophical to say if we would leave if that would be possible at all to the decision if a correlation is a causation to an algorithm then it's kind of that we humans take a step back and leave the complete world to algorithms which is i believe you know we should we should not be doing that now tell us how we can use your approach in maybe medical, but if possible, moving to an industrial environment, does it mean that we need different data from what we have today, other data? So today, typically, we have, you know, PLC, we have sensor data, we have temperature, we have pressure, all those kind of things. Do we 
do we need a different approach? And is that depend on like, you know, discrete manufacturing or process manufacturing? Yeah, maybe let me start quickly with the medical case and we, we then jump to the to the industry case. So the real world data are piling up more and more. So um, in uh, public sickness funds, for example, are collecting lots of data about their patients, millions of patients with all the diagnosis and prescriptions, but also electronic health records are becoming more, more and more used. Um, and there are a lot of so-called observational data or real world data piling up. And, and there is definitely a big opportunity in those data um, because so the pharmaceutical industry needs to spend huge amounts of money on on clinical trials to prove a cause and effect relationship to prove the drug is causing to your disease to become better and and not to have some side effects um, but that's very very expensive um, and on the other hand those real world data are piling up and are largely or to, largely unused for better understanding the effect of drugs and treatments on the real world conditions and potential side effects and also certainly to save money in the so not to be able to understand cause and effect relationships not just in terms of uh, randomized controlled trials But in terms of real-world data, and there are a couple of examples already. So we have a couple of nice success stories there um, on side effects of fluoroquinolones, for example, so sooner coming more. But let me switch to the industry domain. So basically, in industry, from my point of view, data are still underutilized. Um, there are lots of data are collected in a SCADA system. And definitely those data are complex structured. It's not a flat table. Any kind of real-world data, electronic medical records, as I said, it's, it needs to be a complex data schema and it's not a flat table. And that also holds true for data from production line, from the SCADA data of a production line, for example. And those, on the one hand, I believe still even more messy than the data in healthcare and if a cause and effect point of view still underutilized and i hope that is going to change soon um, as there are numerous opportunities in that context so one way as at least what i understand moving towards holistic data maybe we have the data as you say we're not using it another piece of experiences that uh, where i have been personally involved and some listeners will have heard that before that my colleagues you know, the data scientists would typically look at reducing the data through statistical means uh, the easy way of saying if i have the the temperature in celsius and in fahrenheit i maybe i probably only need one of those variables i can throw one away so reduce you know from 150 variables maybe to five or ten which were you know the representative the the top features and then reduce from you know terabytes to you know whatever gigabytes for example and that goes and that was only to be at that time you know running models on a notebook rather than in the cloud now combining that with the need for doing something good for our climate which is happening and we see it all around us where people are saying AutoML, oh yeah wonderful you can run a thousand or ten thousand different models but if you only need to run it once which is certain usp of companies providing certain approaches then they say okay instead of ten thousand times energy consumption x I only have it one time. So w where is the truth, so to say? Uh, should we be looking at both, taking the best of both worlds? Or? For one specific task, predicting a specific kind of a failure of a machine, maybe 10 variables are 
sufficient. For predicting another kind of a failure, it's probably 10 others. Um, yeah. And so <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Others, yeah. I think it's, it holds true in case of a very specific target which you want to predict, but across all different targets, I would say no. And the other thing is typically upfront, you don't know which of the 10 are important. And this, that's kind of the, of what causal discovery does. So uh, causal discovery, it, uh, as, as explained in, in healthcare, we have a hundred million correlations to, you, you might imagine a, a flat table with something like a million columns, uh, one column for each product, uh, which is prescribed in, in Germany, and you have 10,000 different products and 10,000 different diagnoses. And so you're turning this into a flat table would be a, a useless endeavor. But what causal discovery basically does, it's kind of doing a deep search of a complex data model, and it's telling you how to boil down this complex data model to 10, 20, 30 relevant variables, which you can, could imagine um, as the columns of a table. It's ne never done physically. It's just done virtual in a virtual sense. And it's going to give you those 10 columns or those 30 columns, which are important to predict a specific a target um, and which are potentially cause and effect related to the target. What does that mean then? So what what is it then that you offer potential or your customers you do you do you go to them do you support them on site is there a, an off-the-shelf solution what are your tools the specific, specific platform that you use or we are offering two assets the causal discovery algorithms which are built upon our object analytics database so you need to install our object analytics database you can install it locally on on your notebook computer it's a, it's a technology which runs on a small device as well as on a large devices um, for, you can install it as well on a, on a big server with 128 cores that's for example the case in healthcare we have one partner which is marketing the data which he collects from pharmacies basically all the anonymized data of 60, 60 million patients with our order of magnitude 3 billion prescribed drugs and those are sitting on an object analytics database on a service 128 machines course and so this object analytics database in itself is already an asset asset it allows you to explore a complex object in a descriptive way very effectively across different data streams across diagnosis and prescriptions and in particular it allows to run the causal discovery algorithms um, and those are the two assets which we bring to the table uh, the one is our object analytics database an asset on its own indeed um, and our causal discovery algorithms built on top of it Right. So maybe you can kind of walk us through it. I think you have an example of a cylinder head production. You're looking for root cause analysis, how that would work. Where are you involved? I mean, were you involved in, you know, providing your thoughts and ideas to this potential customer? And at some point in time, they can take over themselves. Who is that then? Is that then a typical domain expert? Is it a person that needs some certain data science uh, knowledge or introduction by yourself and what are the different steps and this that this person will take there are a couple of examples success stories from them uh, from the healthcare domain um, and in between also in the industry domain so basically we have started in healthcare uh, because most of the algorithms um, are th they are standard al 
algorithms as propensity scores and so on has been developed in healthcare. And that's also where we started. Um, but uh, we increasingly like the, the industry domain uh, because where we, had none, we had a number of very interesting success stories. One of them, for example, together with SW, Schwäbische Werkzeugmaschinen, which are equipping uh, production lines with their machines. Um, and uh, one of those production lines is uh, at Sharpmüller and they are producing cylinder heads, for example, for Daimler. And uh, those are manufactured in a, in a number of different steps, um, something like 20 different steps, where each of those steps has certainly a number of, of process parameters. Um, so you see you uh, quickly getting into a large number of data along of a whole production line. And at the end of that production line, uh, there is the leakage test. You need to test whether whether the, the cylinder head is leaky or not. And certainly uh, when we started, it was uh, up to 10% of the of the parts which have been produced failed in the, in the uh, leakage test. And then the question is why? What what are potential causes uh, which cause this uh, this failures? Um, and they didn't have a good transparency into the data, not even from a descriptive point of view, and definitely not from a causal discovery point of view. And there we have a, a number of very interesting success stories. I, for example, it turned out that the part temperature is not just correlated to later failures in leakage tests. Um, it's uh, likely indeed be in a cause and effect relationship because we couldn't find any confounders. So we needed to conclude that uh, this part temperature indeed causally affect the, the result of the leakage test. And that was indeed uh, finally confirmed. Basically, it turned out that the leakage test didn't work properly at low temperatures. If the part temperature was too low, uh, the, uh, it's not that the part was leaky, but simply <laughs> the leakage test, test yeah, yeah. Uh, didn't work properly. <laughs> um, they didn't know that. Um, and a couple of other factors which we could pretty quickly dig out of those complex data. And so it's now uh, going to this next step uh, where those algorithms are constantly monitoring this production line. So they are running in, in, in the background whenever new data are loaded. Uh, the cost discovery algorithms are scanning the data. They are uh, comparing the causal results of previous runs to the to the most recent run so to report potentially new upcoming causes for production failures and certainly this if if a new cause is coming up an, an alert an email is sent uh, to the engineer because again, he needs to make the interpretation. It, it might, for a number of reasons, it might be wrong. He's able to, he might want to reject it. But he's, we can kind of search the needle in the haystack from the millions of correlations, just report the, the few potential important causal relationships in kind of an early warning on, or an early notice to the engineer. Um, and the engineer himself, he doesn't need to be a, a data science expert. People at Schwäbische Werkzeugmaschinen who install our technology at the customer side, they certainly have to know, have to have some data science skills. Very interesting to hear. And and when you talked about the twenty steps that they have, I can again from experience relate to your proposal for you know the holistic data that we have been doing a kind of a root cause uh, analysis in a service mount technology SMT production line. They're not 20, maybe they're more typical, like 10 steps, I believe. Uh, we would have only general data, you know, the, the, the metadata from the PLC and uh, from the complete production line. And already at the beginning, my colleagues, they were suggesting that 
that data may not be sufficient. And it turned out to be there were some very interesting statistical pieces of knowledge that we could share, but we needed more. It goes this direction, I believe, of what you're saying. So we were asking for the machine data so of these you know, 10, 15 different machines. Uh, we didn't get them in the end, so we could, we could not actually finish the, um, the root cause analysis. Uh, but it's fair, it's, it sounds very uh, similar to um, what it seems your approach that you're, you're taking there. Normally at this point, uh, we're getting to a close. I would be asking for the machine learning environment, but I feel that's different for you. I still ask, you know, what is the development environment maybe that you're uh, working in, um, in the end, you know, resulting in your assets for uh, causal discovery? Guess you're asking about the technical setup um, of, of the system. Yeah, normally I would want to know, are you working on in the cloud on Azure or Google or uh, AWS? Okay, okay. Are you working with, you know, certain uh, frame structures, Python or whatever? But it feels that you're, uh, I mean, that's a hypothesis assumption that you may be using, working in a little bit of a different uh, setup there. I, I don't think that our setup is very unusual. So it's basically a very standard setup. So as I said, you can run our technology in a client-server setting where the object analytics database sits on a huge machine um, and there are certainly interfaces to it. So there are a number of different interfaces. There's a web-based interface or simply a JavaScript interface where you can build your own applications against that object analytics database. So it helps you to, to just quickly develop custom applications uh, leveraging the, the strengths of an object analytics uh, database. And there is also a Python interface. So you, from your local Python environment, you can issue queries against the object analytics database, get the results back into a Pandas data frame, um, run the causal discovery algorithm from within your Python environment that certainly addresses the, uh, the, the data scientist. Yeah, we want, definitely want to be open to the data scientist. So we, the, the data scientist can install our technology locally, completely locally on his computer or on a huge machine in a client-server setting than, than treating the real big problems of the world. And it's a pretty standard technology. Um, so it's basically containerized, which means that uh, it's, it's wrapped, for example, in, into a Docker container and that Docker container can be installed quickly, more or less anywhere. In particular, it can be installed on a cloud-based service. So this project on the cylinder head manufacturing, it basically runs on Amazon Web Services at the end. So you, you see that is kind of standard technology, which you can very quickly deploy in different environments. Sounds great. So coming to a close, I was going to ask you, where do you see causal discovery? And But I think you've told us we're at the very beginning and you want to change it. So let's change the question towards how then, what is your approach to say that, uh, and are there any difference, by the way, in where we look today on causal discovery in, let's say, Germany, Europe, in relation to US, China, the world? That's one thing. Where are we today? How are you going to be looking at changing it? And, you know, feel free to add any, you know, details that you may want to regarding your company, your team, where you're based, if you're looking for colleagues, whatever. Basically, I think causal discovery is just at the at the very beginning. And that opinion is confirmed by a recent uh, hype cycle, a Gartner hype cycle, which has been published only a couple of weeks ago, where the term causality first time appeared on the Gartner hype cycle on artificial intelligence at the very 
On the left bottom there, on, right? On the left bottom, exactly. Yeah, okay. so, <laughs> for those people knowing the hype curve, we've talked about before. Yeah, uh, and then those people who know what the hype curve is, they, they know what it means. It's a, a, a very new topic, which, however, is likely to be very, very important and will get some visibility um, uh, soon. And there might be, I, I can very much imagine that there is soon the typical hype um, in uh, causal discovery might, might climb up the, up the hype cycle very quickly in the next month and years. Because I, I think it's more than justified because I indeed believe that the topic causality needs to be an important element of, of uh, artificial intelligence. So if if not that, what else? If something you perceive something as intelligent, if it helps you to achieve your business goals, but to achieve a business goal and to set the correct interventions to achieve it, you, uh, you need to know something about cause and effect because otherwise you wouldn't be able to intervene into a system in an intelligent way. So it's it's more than justified that causality is at the start of the Gartner hype cycle. So I expect that it's going to go up there um, and there will, I, I hope that there will be a hype. Um, I'm also very sure that there will be we, we will go through the valley of disillusionment I also. I was going <laughs> to ask you, I was going to give, tell you good luck at the end to say, I hope you're going to, we, you and we, and you as one of the driving forces are going to come out of the trough of disillusionment, I believe it's called, or whatever, the valley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah that will certainly also come. And I, to some extent, we've been going through that um, ourselves already, kind of. So we've started, indeed, a couple of years ago, so Explained Data has been founded six years ago um, and we have been very excited about what we can do um, and as understanding cause and effect based on operational data we have been we have been going up the hype cycle also and we have been going down into the valley of disillusionment also kind of seeing where it's difficult that we indeed need or to also involve the expert and finally come to a realistic approach how to do also discovery so that's kind of our own hype cycle and I think we now have a, a very good and realistic and practical offering uh, in the context of causal discovery. And I would love to see it go up the hype cycle as well. And I hope we can get through the valley of dissolution <laughs> then also to arrive at a very realistic usage of causal discovery. Very good. Final comment where we are with relation to causal discovery around the world, you know, is that the same for Germany, Europe, for USA, China, Asia, as well as the same as for specific markets? I think you suggested that maybe in healthcare, there, it may be the number one, the, the, the driving, the leading market. Any comments there, final? Yeah, I think uh, the, the situation isn't that difficult in the different parts of the world. I I have the impression that topics like causality a little are a little bit more teached um, in US than in Germany, but that might be wrong. So um, at the end, uh, in if, if you go to certain machine learning courses um, on probabilistic reasoning, uh, there's certainly a couple of sessions on causality, and there might be specific lectures on causality, but in general, it's very rare. I also hope that this, from a university point of view, is going to change. And from an applying those algorithms 
to real world data, I think we, we are definitely at the very beginning there. So there are a couple of different approaches on understanding cause and effect relationships. We are definitely not the only ones. There, there are just a few, but um, we are not the only ones. And it's a very different approaches to it, more or less practical in a, in a real world uh, setting. I think we have something which really works in, in with, with real world data and not just with artificial da data. But I don't see that many differences in the different regions. With respect to industries, certainly healthcare is the industry which, since 100 years, already cares about causality. They need to. So if you develop a new product, a new treatment, you better make sure that it has a it has cause and effect sense. And that's why healthcare, since 100 years, already does this in terms of randomized controlled trials largely. But what's becoming different is the, this huge amount of observational data, which simply are collected by means of of our how our healthcare systems work, electronic medical records, which are gathered increasingly, um, or data at, at uh, public sickness funds. And those data are definitely still underutilized. Um, and I see also in healthcare, I see it coming that real-world data. And with that, the topic of causal discovery is going to become more and more important. And the industry in, in or in manufacturing, I believe it's a little bit behind of healthcare in, that, in, in the context of understanding cause and effect, but definitely equally important. And there are also increasing amounts of data piling up. And at the end, I believe that the most comprehensive data and, and the biggest data sets at all are at the end coming from, from industry and from manufacturing lines. And that's why I believe there is a uh, big opportunity in industry for us. Michael, thank you very much. Yeah, I would agree. There's a big potential. Thank you. I would say those uh, listeners, those companies in industry typically that are interested in, you know, trying out causal discovery, maybe with you, your company, They best, you told me, uh, visit your website, explaindata.com. That is with an X, P-L-A-I-N-data.com. Uh, alternatively, you can always go to Michael Haft at LinkedIn, Michael Haft, H-A-F-T. Otherwise, if you, dear listeners, have any questions, comments, as always, please send a short email to robert at AIPod.de or peter at AIPod.de. Uh, very happy that you stayed with us so far. Looking forward to have you again with us next time. And Michael, thank you very much. In Very interesting topic. And as you suggested, we're probably at the beginning of it and looking forward to see what causal discovery will be doing with us and the uh, industry in the next couple of years. Thank you. Thank you, Peter, very much.